Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. of the, uh, the Billboard uh, you know, Hot 100 chart in the States. And it actually became the fifth longest charting single. I think it was tied with Santana's Smooth at 58 consecutive weeks. And it's actually sold over 2 million downloads and been certified double platinum. How many of you actually heard that before? You've, you've, you've heard it before? Okay, you turned the radio once, you probably heard it. Um, now what's interesting is that according to Isaac Slade, he's the lead singer and the songwriter, is that How to Save a Life was composed during his experience working at a, as a mentor at a camp for troubled teens. He said this in an interview. He said, one of the kids I was paired up with was a musician. And here I was, a protected suburbanite. And he was just 17 and he had all these problems. And no one could write a manual on how to save him. It was actually a kid who was addicted to crack cocaine. And Slade says the song is all about the people that tried to reach out to him and were unsuccessful. And he was like, you know... He said in the interview that the boy's family and his friends approached him and said, well, you've got to quit that habit or I won't talk to you again. And so the lyrics describe an attempt by an adult to kind of bungling, you know, confronting a troubled teen. In the chorus, he kind of laments that he was himself unable to save a friend because he didn't know how. So he imagines these steps on, in like how to save a life as if there were a manual, you know, for reaching people in our lives who are on a downward spiral. In step one, you say, we need to talk. He walks. You say, sit down, it's just a talk. Well, he smiles politely back at you, and you stare politely right on, thrun, right on through. Some, some sort of, of window to your right. As he goes left, you stay right. And between the lines of fear and blame, you begin to wonder why you came. And then he says, where did I go wrong? I lost a friend. Somewhere along in the bitterness. And I would have stayed up with you all night had I known... How to save a life. If only there were a manual, right, for, for saving the lives of those that we love. You know, if it were just a matter of finding like three simple steps to reach into the lives of people who we know in our lives who are depressed or lonely or hurting and just, you know, rescue them and draw them out. But there's not. There's no manual. And it's no easy task to draw people who are headed in a downward spiral up towards the light of hope. Perhaps no one knows that better than Jonah. That's the guy whose life we've been studying throughout this whole Rock God series. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. He actually lived around 785 B.C. And he actually kind of rejected the call of God on his life, actually ran away from him, began his own downward spiral, ended up at the bottom of the ocean, belly of a fish, rock bottom, when God actually has mercy and dramatically reaches in and rescues him. And we realize that sometimes it actually takes us hitting rock bottom in our lives to finally call out to God and actually put our trust in Him and believe actually He is the only one who can truly save us. But once Jonah's back on dry land, he discovers something funny. That God saved him not just for his own benefit, but so that Jonah could be a part of a life-saving mission to a whole city of people called the Ninevites. 
And that's really the pattern in the life of every follower of Christ. God saves us, but then he invites us into his saving activity to the world around us. He actually invites us to partner with him, telling others about his great mercy, about the love and forgiveness that he's shown us. And he invites us not only to participate, but to actually like learn from him how to save a life. And so to Jonah kind of, you know, he dusts himself off or, or wipes off the slime, I don't know. And once he's on land and he goes to Nineveh, this, this wicked barbaric city, just totally backwards on a rescue mission to tell these, these savage, brutal people that they need to turn to God or they're going to perish. And he arrives and delivers that, that simple five-word sermon and, and something miraculous happens. The, the Ninevites repent. They, they believe God. And their whole city turned around. We saw that last week and we, we learned something surprising. That God's grace actually runs deeper and faster than our greatest sin or rebellion. And actually extends even into the lives of, of people who we think are beyond help. You know, well, they're beyond repair. They, they're beyond redemption. Actually, according to Jonah, no one is hopeless. No one is beyond the reach of God's pursuing love. No one is too far from God to be saved. And that's a hopeful idea. I mean, to, especially those of you who may feel like no one understands, or that no one cares that actually God does, and that he has come for you in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so, I mean, so on the first level, so you can be forgiven all of those faults and failings. No matter what you've done, where you've been, God can restore you. But then if you're, if you're lonely, God has sent Jesus so you actually never have to be alone again. And, and if you're hurting, God can actually heal some of the deepest wounds of dysfunction in a family, in a generation, and actually repair your heart. Jonah shows us hope, how to save a life. But if you're a believer, I think actually it's the end of Jonah's story. Chapter 4, which we're going to look at tonight, it shows us something else. That although this is good news to people who are far from God or at the end of the rope, for a lot of believers who lose sight of God's grace in their own lives, it's very easy to become hypocritical in our faith and judgmental towards others. And let me invite you to look that up. It's on page 645. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a religious person, you don't usually go to church, first off, that's great. You are welcome here. But however you describe yourself, if you're not particularly religious or, 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 you know, from my perspective, this is probably not the best Sunday for you to have come to our church. Because tonight we're going to talk about something that's actually kind of embarrassing to us as Christians. It's probably something you already know about us. And let me put it this way. Maybe one of the reasons you haven't been engaged in like, you know, faith and and, because you thought that the church is like full of hypocrites, of, of judgmental people. Well, if you just thought the Christian church is full of hypocrites, after tonight's message, you will be convinced that the church is full of hypocrites. In fact, you may actually think this is the best message you've ever heard, because it's going to confirm your worst suspicions about a lot of us. Not not only that that, that maybe our church is full of hypocrites, but you know, actually, the the pastor is is kind of one too. Because today's passage, more than any other portion of Scripture in the Bible, I think is probably more convicting to me, because it exposes something not very pretty in my heart, something I actually wish were not there. Something I spend a great deal of time covering up. And I think it it reveals something because I think God continually brings me back to because it's an area where he wants my heart to actually be more like his. So please don't judge us too harshly. Um, And if you're a believer, buckle up your seatbelt, strap in for the the truth that God has for us in this final chapter. Uh, If you remember where we ended last week, Jonah went to Nineveh, this great city, and and he delivered this simple message, right? Forty more days and Nineveh will be hapak, right? Overturned. And we said it had two meanings. It was either turned upside down and destroyed or turned around and made right. Five words in the Hebrew, short to the point, and this miracle happens. These barbaric people who skinned their victims alive, who, who sacrificed children, believed God. 
They put on sackcloth, they stopped eating, they prayed to God to have mercy, and they repented. They really overturned their hearts, and God relented. So whenever we repent, we notice actually that God changes his mind too. He actually relents. When we repent, he relents. And that last verse in chapter 3, just look at that, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God, again, kind of a miracle. Not unprecedented in history, improbable in scope. But if you research history, we actually know a few things historically that happened that might have kind of set up Nineveh for this, this repentance. And this is, I didn't share this last week, but it's kind of interesting. Within a five-year period, two major plagues ripped through the Assyrian Empire, just, just devastating the population. Thousands died. At the same time, a solar eclipse appeared in the sky, which, as you know, in ancient culture was seen as like a bad omen of things to come. Third thing that happened. 100 miles to the north of Nineveh at this time, three warrior tribes of the region actually formed a pact And they were conquering the whole region, actually moving down, progressively down towards Nineveh. And so with those three things in mind, then comes along this guy, Jonah, whose skin is probably bleached white, right? Covered in fish guts. And this guy, this guy bleached white walks into the town and says, the end is near, repent. And they were like, you know what? We believe him. (laughs) Which is a little lesson for us. Because when, when God impresses upon us to actually talk to someone, you know, about God or invite them to church or whatever, there, there's something a lot of times that rises up in us and says, nah, they're, they're, they're not interested. Or they're not ready. You know, or we judge them. Like, well, they're, they're, she's too far from God. This would be like way out of, this is a stretch. I can't talk to her. And one of the lessons actually of this book is that often God is working behind the scenes, unbeknownst to you, to actually prepare their heart. We ever looked at But God's preparing the way for us to talk about our faith. And, you know, or we think, you know, well, they look happy like they have it all together. They don't need anything. <laughs> But the reality is we have no idea the things God's doing behind the scenes in other areas of their lives to prepare their hearts for his truth. And that should be a great encouragement, especially those of us who've been looking for opportunities to talk with a friend about God or share our faith with a family member or someone close to us. You can be intimidated and think, well, there's no stonewall receptive. God's often working behind the scenes to prepare the way. I saw this past week with my wife, Colleen. We have these neighbors across the street. They moved in, Mark, Nicole, wonderful people. And uh, Colleen's kind of struck up a friendship with Nicole, and uh, she's, like, helping remodel our bathroom. And they're always, always IMing. They literally live across the street. I'm like, just walk across here. She's like, no, no, just IMing, you know. And last Tuesday, um, she's on the phone with, with Colleen, and, and she starts asking about how our church is going. She goes, oh, I just, you know, I, I check it out on the Internet, what's going on. They actually came at Easter. And Colleen says, oh, things are going well. We had this membership brunch last week. It was, it was, it was great. She, and she's like, membership? Like, what's that about? And Colleen was like, well, membership is like, you know, people who are committing themselves to the historic, you know, beliefs of the Christian church about, you know, the Bible, about God and Jesus. And they're like committing together to, to follow Jesus together. And Nicole says, to her, well, well, can I ask what, what exactly do you believe about Jesus? And Colleen's like, I got so nervous, I almost hung up and changed the subject, you know. <laughs> Someone who you think might have no spiritual receptivity, you have no idea what's going on in their heart. And the questions they're wrestling with and how God may actually prompt them to respond. And that is literally what happens. Jonah goes and talks to these Ninevites about God, and as probable as it, as it seems, they took him at his word. They, they didn't kill him. They actually embraced his message and believed in God. And if the story ended there at the end of chapter 3, it would be an awesome Sunday school lesson. Oh, God has mercy. He forgives Jonah. Give him a second chance. Whole city repents. All's forgiven. And see, we should be more bold in telling people about Jesus because God's working behind the scenes. Amen. Let's close in prayer. End of chapter 3. Happy ending. What happens next in chapter 4 is so bizarre and so convicting. If you were making this story up, you would never write this last chapter and end it this way. 
Because Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance reveals something that's probably in the majority of our hearts as Christians that we'd rather not admit. If you look at the end of verse 3 again, it says there, he had compassion, didn't bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. We're like, oh, awesome, praise God. Now pick up with first verse of chapter 4. But Jonah was, let's read it together, greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And you're kind of like, wait, what? Displeased, angry? You're like, wait a minute, shouldn't this be like all high fives? Like, whoa, mission accomplished, show. And Jonah's like, no, this, this is terrible. This thing's not there saved. I knew this was going to happen. I knew they were going to repent and turn to God, and I am ticked off about it. And all of a sudden, we discover this new detail that actually Jonah didn't run from God primarily because he was scared of the Ninevites, but because he was scared of what God might do on behalf of the Ninevites. If you remember, he hated these people. Couldn't stand them. They were the national enemies of the Israelites. They skinned their enemies alive. They immolated children, raped them, and take no prisoners. The single biggest threat to Jonah's people, the nation of Israel. And he was like, I knew it. I knew it, God. I knew you were going to save them. And this is hard for us to comprehend. So let me make a quick, you know, 21st century parallel. Imagine tomorrow you turn on CNN and, and they're, oh my gosh, they found Osama bin Laden. He surfaces tomorrow and calls a press conference and he says, uh, American people, I just, short message, I just need to tell you, I am so sorry about 9-11. Really, I'm, I'm sorry. I am, I'm laying down my weapons. I'm asking, I'm asking your God, your Christian God, for forgiveness. Apologies to you guys and, and you know, all, you know, Al-Qaeda come out of your caves. Apologies to Afghanistan, Iraq, all the, all the destruction. We, we, were, we were wrong. So we renounce our violent ways and we hope you... Uh, the good people of America can just simply forgive us and relent. No consequences. How would that feel to you? Yeah, the truth is, there are actually a lot of people in this room, um, maybe even on the stage, uh, who would be actually kind of disappointed and uncomfortable if something like that happened. Because it's like, well, you, you, can't, you can't just turn around. It can't be that easy. You can't just like repent and be forgiven. We want consequences. We want punishment. And that's how Jonah felt. He was angry, greatly displeased. Look at the subtitle of this, of chapter four. Look at this. Jonah's anger at what? The Lord's compassion. <laughs> the message paraphrase renders this. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew, like an accusation, you were sheer grace and mercy. Not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. And you realize Jonah was angry about the heart of God, about his grace and compassion. I know you don't like to judge people. Second chances. And Jonah gets so worked up, so angry, so outraged that he says in verse 3, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. The prophet becomes a drama queen. <laughs> I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. I mean, pretty extreme, right? And you're kind of like, you know, like, where is this reaction coming from? And you realize Jonah's probably actually thinking about returning home after this mass revival. And, and, and you know, imagine walking into town and, like, you know, his friends go, hey, Jonah, where, you know, where you been? Uh, Nineveh. Where? Nineveh. You, 
You went, you made out a lot. Tell us about it. Well, you know, God was, he's like angry with him. He's going to, he's actually going to wipe them out. Oh yes, it's about time. But I, I warned them. And so, so he didn't, uh, what, you know, Joan didn't even want to go home. Didn't want to tell anyone the story of what happened. It's better off if I die. He's bitter. You know, anyone in your life holding a grudge (laughs) with a bitter heart, it literally eats away at you. So what's God's response? Look at this in verse 4. This is powerful. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? In other words, Jonah, you're right. I am the God who is full of compassion. I am the God of love, the God who relents. I am the God who likes to withhold judgment, who likes to, yes, give second chances to people who blow up big time. And Jonah, the reason this is good news is that this is the very thing I just did for you. A little short-term memory problem here. <laughs> you just experienced my mercy. I said, I said, go, you said no, and I fished you out, I spared your life. You are the recipient of my grace. Now, how in the world can you turn to me and say that I shouldn't give to others what I've so freely given to you? You, of all people, have no right to be angry with me. Then it says something funny happened. Look at verse 5. So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. So he picked up his marbles and went home. There he made himself a shelter, sat in shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I love this because it's so human. You get this? Jonah picks up his marbles. He goes home. He's in the middle of like a conversation with God. And he's so frustrated. He basically like storms off in a sulk. And he hikes up on a hill, he gets like a lawn chair, and he puts up like a cabana, right? And he takes off his sandals, puts his like toes in the sand, gets a cool drink with one of those little umbrellas, right? And he turns on some Jimmy Buffett, a little sunblock on his nose, he's like, well, I want to see what happens. Because I hope God changes his mind again and does the fireworks show. Fire and brimstone and just smokes these people. Because I want a ringside seat to watch this, see what's going to happen. What happens... When you harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, you are, you are the opposite of grace. You know what that's called? Disgrace. Disgrace. <laughs> you harbor disgrace in your heart. You harbor unforgiveness, and literally the grace of God in your life, it dries up. The forgiveness he's generously given you is literally like forgotten. And Jonah is bitter, and he's angry, and he's unforgiving towards these people. Anyone identify with that? <laughs> Anyone have someone in their life that seems impossible to forgive? God says, Jonah, don't, don't, no, 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 don't, don't go back there. Join me. Don't run away again. Remember what I've done for you, the life of grace I invited you into, where, one where you forgive others of their sins as I have forgiven you. Folks, if nothing else, forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian life, folks. If you're harboring unforgiveness, we're told in some way it short circuits like the grace that God's given us. Jesus talks all about this in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but Jonah's like in no mood to forgive. So he's like, cranks up the Jimmy Buffett. He's like, sorry, God, I can't hear you. Ah, you know, he's like, and sometimes we like to hold on to unforgiveness. You know, why do we do that? Why is that? I mean, it's actually comforting, isn't it, in a, in a strange kind of perverse way? It's familiar. You know, I'm the right one. They're the wrong one. And you do that long enough, you actually shrink into this person who spends their life waiting and hoping for misfortune to befall the people who've hurt us. And it's sad. It's a sad picture. It's a, it's a hardening of the heart that occurs. And it can be very difficult to get out of. Which is why, grace again, 
God reaches out to Jonah with kindness. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Suddenly, a little mood swing here. Jonah's not so angry. He's pretty pumped about this vine. Things are now actually comfortable for him. They're getting better on a personal level. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. You can circle that phrase, scorching east wind. In their culture, that's what they would have called a shirako. We still have these today. It is a meteorological phenomenon. It is a Mediterranean wind that comes off of the Sahara and actually can reach hurricane speeds in North Africa and Southern Europe. And it's something that would have come up very suddenly, like this howling east wind, hurricane force, and the temperature would go up about 15 to 20 degrees, just like that. This is a picture, actually, of one. Take a look at this. This is a Scirocco from Libya, and you can see it's blowing a dust over the Mediterranean into Malta, Italy, and Greece. And when a Scirocco comes, you couldn't even remain outside because this howling wind would like suck all the moisture out of the air and the temperature would go up and you have to take refuge inside because it's like unbearable. Still happens today, all right? I know some of you are like, cool, all you Weather Channel junkies like, awesome, Scirocco. And so, so God sends this, this scorching east wind and it says the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. In other words, Jonah's like almost like passes out in his lawn chair. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. You notice in verses 6 through 8, there is a thrice-repeated word that's very revealing. God, what? Provided. God provided a vine. How nice. God provided a worm. Not so nice. God provided a wind. This sucks. (laughs) In other words... God intentionally brought some things into Jonah's life in order to teach him something. He gave him some things, and then he took them away. Anyone feel an object lesson coming on here? God provides his vine. I mean, sure enough, we like it when God brings good things into our lives, yes? I mean, when he blesses us, he provides for things that make us happy and more comfortable. Most of us have many blessings like this, right? I mean, I'm happy about my family, (laughs) I'm happy God provided this church. I'm I'm happy God's provided me friends, a a job that I love. God provides many things for which I am grateful. And maybe you can identify. Maybe you are in a season of blessing right now. You can thank God for that. Because most of us like the God of the vine. That's when it's easy to worship. On the other hand, not many of us care for the God of the wind and the worm, do we? Because God often gives, but sometimes he takes away. And that's a hard truth. It's one of the more difficult realities of being in a relationship with a God who is not at all like us and actually is not solely focused on our comfort, but on our character. And we see here that God sometimes sends a wind and a worm into our lives, not to punish us, but to teach us something. Because if you have a life that's simply marked by comfort and, you know, success and prosperity, what happens to your focus? It actually kind of tends to narrow, doesn't it? I mean, you naturally begin seeing yourself as like the, you know, the focus of things all about me, about my comfort being provided for. And so God sometimes sends a wind and a worm as like a perspective corrective in our lives, a perspective corrective to get our attention and actually kind of recalibrate our focus actually from ourselves to the things that really matter. I saw this principle at play this week with a friend. 
who I was talking with on the phone, his business is going through exceptionally hard times. He can't even explain it. Very, very difficult. A lot of uncertainty. It's weird because for the last, you know, like 12 years, he's had a, out of college, rocket ride to success. I mean, just full throttle, right up into the air. But he's like, you, can, you can't believe it. He goes, this happened, and then this thing happened. And he's like, the only good thing that can make it worse is if like this random thing, and it happened. He goes, I, I, don't, I don't even know what, what to say. He goes, I, it, I may actually go under. I was like, oh my, my gosh. I was like, what? So, like, how do you make sense of this? He goes, well, he goes, two things. He goes, things in my life have never, at the, never been this far out of my control. Not out of control, out of my control. Meaning his ability to, like, steer or guide or correct it and just kind of make, you know, well, I can recount. He's like, two, I have never been this dependent on God. I mean, I don't have a choice. I'm like praying every day, every in the afternoon, learning to trust God in a new way. Because when something is taken from you that's very dear, it has a way of realigning our priorities, doesn't it? See, most of us can control the outcome of things. Maybe you're, you know, an A-type player. You know, your job have, you know, problems. Well, you work harder, you know, or change jobs or you move to a new place. But when God allows something to come along into our lives over which we have no control, an illness, an unforeseen hardship, a season of, like, discontent in a relationship or marriage. What happens? Well, all of a sudden, we are involuntarily enrolled in the school of humility. <laughs> I, I can't do anything about this. I have to depend on God because I can't manipulate things. They're outside our control. And the second thing that happens in a season of hardship, it tends to actually bring to the surface what's really important. Because sometimes blessings can be a curse. In other words, your business skyrockets and actually your family suffers. Or you get a promotion, but your wife gets neglected. And it's at that moment that God, again, in his grace, reaches in to offer a perspective corrective. He sends a storm or a wind or a worm into our lives that actually causes some momentary discomfort because something's taken away or erodes. Our career hits a bump in the road. Relationship flounders. Your, your you know, kids go off the deep end. And you're powerless to do anything about it. Who do you turn to? The God of the vine, as well as the worm. The God who gives and who takes away. And we have a choice to thank him you know, for the good, which is easy, uh, but also to see his hand in the not so good, uh, which is a much bigger challenge. To be thankful for a father who not only loves, but actually corrects. Who loves us enough to care about more than our comfort, but our, actually our character as well. Who we're becoming in the seasons of life. So we all go through these seasons in the Christian life. Seasons of blessing. The vine grows seemingly overnight. It's like, I didn't do, even do anything. Everything's gold. And God seems to be in every detail. Thank God for that. But we also need to thank God for seasons of wind. When the worm comes and the vine withers and the sun gets hot and things actually get uncomfortable because of what's he doing? He's teaching us. He's molding us into the character of Jesus Christ through these various seasons that he brings into our lives. If you look at the four chapters, all you see is God providing this. God provides a boat. God provides a storm. God provides a fish. God provides a vine. God provides a worm. God provides a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. You want to talk about a guy in need of a perspective corrective? You capture this? 
The man is suicidal because his plant is wilting. But the Lord said, Jonah, you've, you've been concerned about, about this vine. It's where it's going to get real practical for us. You've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't even tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. In other words, here's this real temporary thing. And you're like all emotional. You're all like jacked up and torqued and upset because you're attached to this little thing in your life that's very, very temporary that you didn't even have anything to do with. Verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. In other words, they're clueless. They're like children, Jonah. They can hardly even tell right from wrong. And one of the reasons I'm actually relenting and giving them a second chance is because half of what they were doing, they didn't even know was sin. They're like children, Jonah. They don't even know better. There are people out there in your life, people all around you, who are clueless and perishing, and you're in a tizzy about your houseplant. And many cattle as well. I don't know what that is. It's kind of thrown in there. I don't... <laughs> Sorry. I think he's like taking a jab at Jonah. He's like, okay, Mr. Nature Lover, I know you're all upset about the vine. How about the cows? A little compassion for Bessie here, right? And then look at how the book ends. God kind of takes Jonah by the shirt collar and puts him to the wall and asks him this piercing rhetorical question. Should I not be concerned? about that great city. There's that word concerned again. In other words, here's what he's saying. Jonah, you're, you're concerned, all right, about all the wrong things. You're concerned about whether or not um, they get what they deserve. And you're concerned about whether or not you get what you think you deserve. I mean, I know you think they deserve judgment. And you're mad at me because I'm not giving them what they deserve. And you're mad at me because you think you deserve comfort. And I'm not giving you what you deserve. Hey, Jonah, you know what I'm actually concerned about? I'm actually concerned about making sure that nobody gets what they deserve. That's the program of grace. And I've invited you to be a partner with me in that process. And you are so concerned and consumed about all the wrong stuff. You need to understand, this is about how to save a life, not how to preserve your comfort. And you can't seem to get online with me about the stuff that I'm most concerned about. And, and this is where it starts getting real personal, folks. This is the embarrassing part. Because like in a general way, I mean, you know, as a pastor, I'm, I'm real concerned. I'm concerned with people coming to know Christ. I mean, in a broad sense, I am concerned about people knowing God in a, in a very general way. But in the details of everyday life, in the details of moment, there's, there's a little Jonah in me. <laughs> and if I'm completely honest and candid with you, I can be far more concerned about whether my dry cleaning was done right than the person who did my dry cleaning. <laughs> I picked up my jar of dry cleaning in town the other day, and I come home, and, and I was like, oh, man. And it looked like, you know, the collar wasn't done right. It's kind of like smashed into the side, and I came through the door. Like, calling. I was like, well, she screwed it up again. I can actually get passionate. I can get emotional about the fact that my dry cleaning, that after I wear it, it's going to be wrinkled and sweated and undone in just a few hours. I can get more emotional about the dry cleaning being done right than about a person who is going to live forever somewhere. And I'm a little bit like Jonah. I get all concerned about all the wrong things that don't really matter in the light of eternity. How about you? Isn't it amazing the the anger, the emotion, the concern we can express over stuff that 24 hours later doesn't even matter. 
and in the process totally neglect or overlook the people who God brings into our life who are going to live forever somewhere. So you get more concerned about the manicure than about the manicurist. About the landscaping of your lawn than the guy who actually cut the grass. The service on your car than the guy who did the work. What about restaurants, you know? I go out to eat to lunch today, and it's like, if it takes more than 10 minutes, it's like, where's your order? They forget about it. You know? It's like, what's the point? You're going to eat again in six hours anyway. (laughs) This temporary stuff that largely has to do with our comfort, it absorbs our time, our emotion, our passion, that makes us totally forget the person involved who has been made by God in His image, designed to spend forever somewhere. And God says, Jonah, Tim, liquid folks, I know you have a general concern for people, but in the moment, in your daily life, are you allowing some momentary secondary concern to actually actually block you from being concerned about what I'm concerned about? Do you know what the measure of spiritual maturity is? I mean, in a church, we talk about, you know, spiritual maturity. Well-meaning Christians spend a lot of time talking about it, reading about it, measuring, you know, their maturity against others. You want to know what the mark of spiritual maturity is? Here's the measure. When your concerns actually sync up and match the concerns of your heavenly Father, when they actually become, almost start mirroring one another, when we become as concerned about the things in this world that concern God, that's the measure of spiritual maturity. Jonah was concerned with all the wrong stuff. Inconsequential, here today, gone tomorrow. I wish I could say I wasn't like that, but I am. <laughs> Earlier this year, I was going for lunch at a, uh, a salad bar in New York City. Anyone going to Manhattan? Anyone travel in Manhattan, work, school, whatever? Okay. I'm uh, part of this monthly network with other pastors in the tri-state area, and we get together like once a month to like, you know, jibber jabber, you know, discuss leadership, strategy, stuff like that. So once a month, I jet to Manhattan for the day. And we meet from like 9 to 12, then we get an hour for lunch and we like meet the rest of the day. And I, I typically go out with the other guys, you know, eat in a group, catch up. But this day, we get out for lunch and I, and I go outside, I get a call myself. I'm like, oh no, go ahead, you know, and so I'm talking, whatever. I miss going with the group. Call over and I'm like, oh, you know, they let, well, I'm like, you know what, that, that's actually, that's actually great. <laughs> I would like, it'd be nice to eat by myself. I actually wouldn't mind an hour of peace and quiet. Have you ever gone, ate lunch with a bunch of pastors? Preachers in particular? Good luck getting a word in edgewise. <laughs> We all think we're life of the party, you know? So, so I'm like, great. <laughs> Preach your free lunch. So, so I go to the salad bar across the street. It's this little bodega, and I, and I get my plastic tray. I, I go to the buffet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Mushu Park. Good times. And I heap it on, and I go, and, you know, I pay at the counter, and, and then I turn around. You've, you've been there in this, you know, you, you start looking at, like, the seating, you know, section. Most of the tables are, like, taken, and I'm like, all right, and I spy it. There's a little bar at the counter, okay, with, with a cup with just two stools looking out onto the street. So I'm like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm there. I go, I sit down, I get my, my mushu pork out, I put my, you know, my plastic utensils all nice. And the best part, I'm like, oh, God has been here. There is an unclaimed copy of the New York Post sports section open to the Yankees page. I'm like, thank you, Lord. I bless, I take that blessing for you. You know, my dream come true, a moment of quiet, you know, and I, and I sit there, I got it all ready, I'm ready to dive in, and then to my left, I see it. I see him. Oh, no, 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 do not, no, 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 no. Out of my peripheral vision, this guy's making his way over to me, and he's got this tray, it's like got a couple, you know, soup on it, and, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 you know, and this is one of those things, we ever do this where you kind of like try to like spread out, like, yeah, kind of, you know. 
just looking at the paper here, <laughs> spreading it all over. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, he pulls up the stool right next to me, slides right on in there. And to be blunt, I didn't even look at him. I knew he was there because I could, I could smell him. Not to be coarse, he had likely been out in the street, hadn't showered in a few days. Not much in the way of hygiene. Woolen cap, matted hair. This is like spring, summer weather. Do you know what the first thing I thought was? First thought came to mind? Wow. I wonder if this guy knows the Lord. Mm, Not so much. Didn't even cross my mind. I just slid my paper actually over in the other direction. Actually kind of like put my Diet Coke between me and him, like this little unconscious like boundary. And, you know, started reading the box scores. And, and, you know, because this was my moment. I had lunch. I had the sports section. All the pleasures from which I derive is a little satisfaction in life. And, you know, I go on eating. And I'm trying to read. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm like, oh, God. You know, I start thinking. I'm like, oh, come on, Tim. Buck up. Here's this guy. You know, maybe God is actually, you know, brought in here like divine appointment. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, whatever that thing. And, uh, <laughs> and then one of the clerks comes up to him. I guess he like forgot his change or something. She's like, you know, this is yours. And he responds in a language like Portuguese or something. I can't, I can't even understand it. And I'm like, yes, he doesn't speak English. I don't have to speak to him. As long as I'm confessing my sin, let me tell you what's even worse about this. <laughs> you know what the subject of our little pastor's network was that day? What all these pastors had gathered to talk about and share strategies for? Evangelism. <laughs> Which if you're not, again, in church stuff, it's just about, you know, sharing your faith with people. We were investing an entire day to the question, how could we be more effective at getting the good news of God's love out to people in a hurting world? And we spent three hours brainstorming strategies. We listened to each other's best practices, wrote stuff down, came away, fired up all ideas to share with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And here I am, sitting across the street, moments later in a bodega, basically doing like yoga contortions so I can like preserve my, my, my comfort, my little safety zone, and avoid having to talk to the guy next to me. Because you know what? I'm like you. In general, I believe all the right stuff. I mean... Folks, Jonah's theology was perfect. This guy intellectually understood the truth that God is merciful. That people matter to God. That God actually wishes no one to perish, but that all be saved. Jonah had perfect theology. I mean, he was a prophet for heaven's sake. In a general sense, he believed the right things. But in the moment, when it matters, in the moment when I'm caught between What concerns God and what concerns me in that moment, what concerns me sometimes creeps up in between what concerns God. And I actually just often go with what concerns Tim. (laughs) I'm concerned with how to preserve my comfort, my vine, my little patch of ground made up of all the little things that bring me some relief and comfort. And God's like, actually in this world, I'm concerned with one thing. How? to save a life. That's convicting. Because my my prayer for me out of that, I was just kind of like, God, I want to live my life concerned about the things that matter to you, that you're concerned with. I actually don't want to spend my, another, you know, day, my weeks, my months caught up in the temporary that, you know, you didn't get it right, it's not efficient, he's late, she didn't bring my food, no, 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 no. I don't want to spend my energy, my emotion, and stuff that's not even going to matter an hour later to the neglect of people who are going to spend forever somewhere. But I got to tell you, it's embarrassing to admit, I got a little Jonah in me. I bet you got a little Jonah in you too. 
So here's what I want us to do. On your way in, we gave you a gift. You got your gift? Hopefully you got a flower on the way. And don't be shy. If you didn't get it, raise your hand. We got these in all colors. If you, if, you know, if you just see someone with it, you know, and you got an extra, just kind of pass it down, all right? It's yours to take. Guys, don't worry about feeling macho, okay? All right? This is just take the flower, go with it, all right? It's so funny. <laughs> First service said, don't worry about being, you know, feeling macho. And this guy in the, in the second row, he goes, he goes, okay. He, <laughs> he ripped the top off and just holds the thing. Great, that's fine. This is your vine, all right? Let me tell you why we're giving you this, okay? I want to ask a question, a hard question. And you may need some time to answer this. Maybe you'll know it immediately. Maybe you need to talk over it over lunch or dinner. You may need to spend some time praying. God, help me grade this straight. But if you're like me, there may be something in your life, okay, something that more than other things that vie for your attention and that actually tends to, on a regular basis, kind of slide up in between our concern for the people in this world who need God and actually what concerns us. What is that for you? What's your vine? What's the one thing that tends to slide up in between your concern for the people who God has put in your daily life? What is that thing? Okay? Think. For some of you, it may be unforgiveness. Okay, we just talked about this. A past hurt or an unresolved grudge that just kind of is always uh, kind of poking its head up. And although it's like awkward and, and you want it resolved, it's actually also kind of comforting because <laughs> it keeps in place your sense of rightness, right? I'm the one right, she's wrong, and they're the bad one. And you know what? They don't deserve forgiveness anyway. So why should I make the first move? Maybe, just maybe there's some of you here who are doing a nice job tending to this little root of bitterness because it's comforting to you, my precious. The only problem is it's also the thing that's preventing you from sharing God's grace and compassion with those closest in your lives. Maybe unforgiveness. Okay? For others, it may, it may be your reputation. Because you sit here today and you think, well, you know what, I, I do care about people. But, but when it comes to the moment, when it comes to the conversation, to really like putting it out there and taking a risk, you know, talking about your relationship with God or church or whatever, all of a sudden, what, what, what comes between you and your concern for that person is, is your reputation. Oh, I don't want to look stupid. Or I don't want to be rejected or shot down. You're more concerned about your reputation, which is here today and gone tomorrow, than about the people you work with who are going to spend forever somewhere. What is that thing for you? What, what, what would it be? For some of you, you know what it is? This is me. It's your schedule. I, I mean, I can relate to that. That's what this is for me. I mean, you know, that alarm goes off. You, like, hit the ground running. It's off to the races. Meeting after meeting, appointment after appointment, email, text, reports, running, running, running. Got to pick up the kids, go to the show, uh, stay up late, wake up early, starts all over again. Schedule, 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 schedule. And you're so concerned with keeping your schedule, keeping the flow, the to-do list kind of going. And that is all good stuff. I mean, that, that's great to be organized, efficient, productive. But sometimes... That schedule is the very thing that rises up in between you and your ability to actually slow down and spend time with people in your life who are far from God or who need help. Why? Because they're not on the list. Relationships usually aren't. That's the situation with my friend Joe. At the beginning of this series, I told you about my high school friend Joe, who I hadn't seen in five years. And I mean, Rock God, you know, has been our Invest and Invite series. 
we're, we're encouraging, we encourage everyone to like kind of invest, you know, in relationships with friends and neighbors. And then maybe if you haven't been to church in a while, invite him, just come and check it out. And I was going to invite my friend Joe because he works at a bar back in my hometown. And you know what? Here we are, last night of the series, never came. We emailed back and forth three or four times. I was actually going to meet him for dinner after the opener, but he couldn't come last minute. So I said, you know, text me, I can't make it. And, I said, and then he was like, I'll come for Bon Jovi. Never showed. You know, I did. I kind of like, ugh, shook my head. You know, kind of disappointed. But I'm, I'm praying about this the other day, just kind of like talking with God, like, Lord, you know, it's not about Joe. I wish I could do something, you know, kind of thinking about it. And you know what God told me? He spoke real clear. He was like, nice job, Lucas. Invest and invite, huh? <laughs> so what investment did you actually make in Joe's life? Let me get this, make sure you get this right. You sent him an email, an email, investment. And you are disappointed that some friend you haven't spoken with or seen in five years didn't magically get your email and say, I can't wait to go to church. Whoopty friggin' do. God didn't say friggin', he said just whoopty do. That was part of me. And I thought, you know what, he's right. In other words, how intimidating is that for like my friend Joe? We've not seen each other. I mean, I know he's living a life pretty far from God. He's talking to me about it a little bit. But to travel all the way to Morristown, I'm going to come in this room full of religious people I've never met. That's not investment. I don't have time for that. Because investing in my relationship with Joe, actually, let's use the correct phrase, resurrecting our friendship would require what? Time. Personal outreach, wouldn't it? In fact, how about, imagine this, me going to visit him in his environment. Actually stopping by the bar to catch up with him, entering his world. That's, that's hard. I, I, not only is it intimidating, but it takes what I have very little of, actually, time. And yet I know one thing about my friend. That God is deeply concerned for Joe. He matters to God. And I'm not sure he knows that. And somehow I've allowed this thing, my busyness, my schedule, to get in the way of me and a person that God's concerned about. Should I not be concerned about Joe? That's me. That's my thing. What's yours? What's your one thing, if you had to name it, in your life that you'd say, that is a recurring obstacle that gets between me and the things God's concerned about? What would it be? What would you label this flower? Because this represents Jonah's vine, okay? Vine's a good thing. Many things in our lives are good things. They're just not the main thing. <laughs> Maybe it's comforting. It's a grudge. Or it's temporal, a reputation. You want to look stupid. Or it's limiting. I, I don't have enough time. What would this be up for you? Hold up your vine, everyone. Let's have everyone hold up their flower. Hold it up. I want to see a room for it. There it is, a sea of flowers. I wonder what all these flowers represent in this room. What is it that you're so concerned about? that gets in the way of what your heavenly Father is most concerned about in this world. See, God is concerned about this generation of people. God is concerned about this generation of teenagers. God is concerned about the couple across the street, your neighbor across the hall. God is concerned about the guy in the cubicle next to you. Yeah, him too. That's what the whole deal's about. (laughs) What do you allow to creep up between you and sharing God's concern. This may take a day or two to figure out. It's a tough question, but here's what I want you to do. As we leave here in a few minutes, this week, I want you to take this flower with you. Do not leave this behind. (laughs) And I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it for the remainder of the week. 
I don't, you know, I don't, where that, on the dashboard of your car, okay? Tape it to your mirror, pin it to your, you know, cubicle work, whatever. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to do one thing. I want you to watch it wither. I want you to watch it brown, just shrivel, decay, just shrink up, because that's what happened with Jonah. Jonah was concerned about that vine to the neglect of people. The thing that brought him great comfort actually nursed his neglect for the people who God had great concern for. And this was temporal, fading, here for a moment, gone overnight. But the Ninevites mark this. Every one of them, each of them, spent forever somewhere. Same goes for us. For our family, for our friends, co-workers, neighbors. And God wants to know, are you willing to share my concern? To actually let go of this thing that slides up between you and sharing my heart for them. Can you name what that is? Represented by the green in your hand? As you watch that process of withering this week, say, you know what, God, I want to let that go. I, w- I want to hold very loosely to this thing. My, my unforgiveness, my reputation, my job, my schedule. Whatever's preventing me from sharing your concern for the people around me, I, I let it go. Because why? The Lord gives and the Lord also takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because the song is not how to preserve your comfort, Jonah. The song is how to save a life. And we're invited to get on board and get in tune with our Father's song. Do you share his concern? Do you need a perspective corrective? I do. Because there's a little bit of Jonah in me. Anyone else here with a little bit of Jonah in them? See your hands? Yeah? Okay. Let's take that before God together, all right? Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that we have hope because your story, the Bible, is not filled with superheroes. Not with spiritual superstars, but actually people like Jonah. <laughs> and that gives us great hope, Lord, because um, we're imperfect, Lord, and we know we fall short of your desire for us to be in on your mission to save this world, to save and be concerned about the lives of the people who are in our circle of influence. Thanks, God, that you can use Jonah, that you could use me, that you could use Kelly and Tom and Nicole and Dan and every man and woman in this room, everyone who's listening online, to change a life. We can make a difference. But, Lord, I ask that you would um, just um, be gentle with us, Lord, and um, begin rooting out the things just in our lives, Lord, that become between us and what concerns you. We want to be your people. We are so thankful for grace. Forgive us for our short-term memory. Lord, thank you for the people who, um, who are concerned enough about us to tell us about Jesus Christ. They prioritized us over something in their lives. I want to thank you for them. And Lord, we want to carry that legacy forward. So I ask that you do that right now by your Holy Spirit. Call to mind exactly what you need to speak to each of us about and give us the courage to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name we ask that. Amen.